Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. about breathing. Uh, Just kind of consciously pay attention uh, every time you inhale, uh, every time you exhale. Uh, Monitor uh, how oxygenated uh, your body feels. Uh, Reflect on the fact for a moment uh, that if for some reason you were to stop breathing, uh, that is the quickest way for you to perish. Uh, And just realize that if any moment I stop breathing, it would be the end of me as quick as anything else. Uh, Now, uh, chances are we begin to think that way and we very quickly get to the point uh, of either hyperventilating or feeling like we're suffocating. Uh, Either that or we just get really annoyed with the guy up front who's asking us to do this, but let's not talk about that. Um, uh, But oftentimes I would say that is what seminars on decision making begin to feel like. Because like breathing, decision-making is something that we do all the time, whether we're thinking about it or not. And if we try to bring a level of intentionality to every decision that we make, it just becomes paralyzing. There's no way that we can do it. But if we reflect on the significance of even the small decisions that can accumulate and impact our big decisions, then we'd be like, what if I don't do that? And it just, it's awful. Now, uh, that's one of many challenges uh, that we face in the process uh, of decision-making. And as we go through this material, I just want to orient you uh, to how we're going to approach it. Uh, In chapter 1, we're going to look at other challenges like the one we just discussed to decision-making. Because I think until we understand challenges well, we are ill-prepared to make application of what we learn. We may leave here and think, ah, that was such good material, or at least I hope you leave here feeling that way. Uh, But then we don't necessarily see the moments when we make it because we don't recognize the challenges when we need to implement it. Then in chapter 2, it's going to be a little bit heady in chapter 2 as we examine what are some factors that play into how we think about decision-making, particularly as Christians, uh, that I think can make it harder. Now, I don't think it's just Christians who need to think about and hear these challenges. I think anyone who lives with a sense of destiny or a sense of life having a purpose larger than what I want to make of it would benefit uh, from what we'll look at in chapter 2. But I think as Christians, there's some things there that we really need to think through well in order to move forward. Then we're going to look at chapter 3. And it's in chapter 3... Uh, that we will look at individual decision-making. And you may say, now wait a second, this is a marriage seminar. Why are we going to begin with individual decision-making? Well, two reasons. One, uh, because I think responsible individual decision-making is the foundation for a healthy marriage. I think most of us would agree with that if we reflect on it for just a moment. But secondly, it's because of where I think the Apostle Paul begins. 
oftentimes when we think about marriage in the Bible, we immediately go to Ephesians chapter 5 and we pick up at verse 25. But for the moment, I want us to pick up at verse 15, which is just a few verses up above that, and look at how Paul walks into his discussion of marriage. He says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do you hear in that an expectation of wise, mature, individual decision-making leading into um, marriage? I think that's very much there. And so that's what we'll take our time in uh, in chapter 3. Then in chapter 4, uh, we're going to pick up with consensus decision-making. Because I think that's what Paul was talking about in Ephesians 5.21, where he says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The majority of joint decisions that we'll make in marriage will be made as friends. Uh, this is why we talk about our life, our plural. Uh, this is where we learn to think as a we instead of as a me. It would be my contention that in a healthy marriage, the significant majority, the growing majority of decisions that are made in that marriage are made through consensus. We want that to become the default mode of decision making. And then we'll pick up uh, in chapter 5 with corporate decision making, with headship and submission. Uh, and I think this is what Paul was talking about in Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. Where he says, wives submit, to your, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, not all decisions are going to be able to be made through consensus. Couples won't agree on every decision. And so there is a sense in which we need a way to make those decisions. And so as we go through these five chapters, I think... Part of it for you as the listener will be, you go, okay, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, I'm going to have a little bit of a hard time viewing this as a marriage seminar. And I would say I get that, but I would say everything that we cover in those chapters is absolutely essential if we are going to make God-honoring decisions in consensus and in headship and submission, which is what marriage is all about, in a way that's going to lead us to the will of God. And So let's pick up with chapter 1. What makes decision-making hard? And I think Kevin DeYoung helps us get started on that in a great way. He says, life is wide open and filled with endless possibilities. But with this sense of opportunity comes confusion, anxiety, and indecision. With everything I could do and everywhere I could go, how can I know what's what? Now you add to that a passion to discern God's will for my life. And that's one of the key reasons there will always be a market for a book about the will of God. And we begin to say, how do I make decisions in a way that's going to put me to the will of God in the midst of everything in front of me? And it feels like you're asking me to end world hunger and create world peace. I just don't think I can do it. And, and we ask, why is that? And one of the reasons is because we started making decisions long before we started thinking. 
much less before we started thinking biblically. Um, the bulk of our early decisions were made through personality. And so if we were an analytical person, we just wanted to know why. And we stayed in that why phase a lot longer than anybody else and than our parents really wanted us to. And when we come to the Bible, we're always looking for the principles of what's in there. Or maybe our personality is just a lot more experiential. And so our inclination is to rely on feelings or experiences that are just beyond coincidence to guide us so that we know what we ought to do. Or if we're somebody who dislikes authority, then maybe we bristle to the fact altogether that Scripture is this kind of binding authority and God's way's right and we have to follow what He says and we kind of view God as the man. Uh, you know, that, and a lot of that kind of stuff just comes from our temperament and our personality. Uh, you add to that the, inf the environmental influences of your home. Uh, what was rewarded within your home? Was, was your home a place where it was just impossible to win? It was a harsh home where you always put in your place and it just, okay, that influences how I make decisions. Or maybe your home was permissive and if I just persisted, then I always got my way and that influences how I make decisions. Well, that aspect of personality is kind of the momentum that influences my decision-making even when I'm trying to be intentional. Now, Kevin DeYoung talks about being overwhelmed, and I think if we're honest, another reason uh, that we get overwhelmed is because we just don't want any risk. Uh, we, we really hope, we say, Brad, could you teach us a seminar so that we will always arrive at the right decision? Uh, that's what we want. That's why we came here. You made a notebook. We're optimistic. This is going to go that way, right? Um, and I think sometimes even the way that we talk about God's will, uh, when we say things like, there is no safer place to be than the center of God's will. And when I hear that, my, my natural reaction sometimes is, really? Have you read your Bible? Uh, do you see the kinds of situations that God's people, even as they follow Him, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, the kinds of hardships and struggles that they face, even when they're not sinning? But yet, uh, we want to be safe. And then there's so many of those unpleasant feelings when we don't feel safe. And, and something feels uncertain, and we ask ourselves the question, is that God closing a door? Or is that God telling me that I need to step out and show faith in this situation? And if you're asking, are you going to give me the answer to that question? Uh, I would simply say there is no one-size-fits-all answer to that kind of question. And any system uh, that tells you that it is, uh, is extra-biblical uh, at best. Uh, now Henry Blackaby helps us look at some other challenges. He says, uh, what is God's will for my life? is not the best question to ask. I think the right question is simply, what is God's will? Once I know God's will, then I can adjust my life to Him and His purposes. The focus needs to be on God and His purposes, not on my life. And one of the confusing things is just the number of different ways that the Bible and we use the phrase, God's will. And any time you have a conversation where the same word or phrase is being used multiple ways, it gets confusing. 
Uh, think about the mom who I heard telling me about she was driving along in the car and her little girl was in the back seat being all kind of goofy. Uh, and she said, oh, you're just being a nut. And the girl got kind of perturbed and was somewhat annoyed. And she said, Mama, I can't be a nut. You know I'm allergic to nuts. There is no way I could be a nut. Um, and it's cute, but nut as kind of, hey, you're being a crazy, silly person, and nut, the fruit to which some of us have allergies, is the same word being used in two different ways. And we, we take statements and we say, it's God's will that I be six foot tall. Okay, well, as God knit me together in my mother's womb and he gave me a certain genetic code that meant I was going to be six foot tall, in one sense, that was God's will. And even when I was growing up and I'd hit a gross spurt, my pants would be too short and they'd look like high water. And my mama would say, we ought to just put a brick on your head to make you stop growing. There was nothing about putting a brick on my head that was going to change that aspect of God's will. But then we can say it's God's will for me to always tell the truth. Well, in that sense, I do have a choice. Believe it or not, sometimes I do lie. Uh, and there is this sense there that I can disobey God's will. And then I can say, it's God's will that I would be a counselor. And that's different from me being six foot tall, and that's different from me telling the truth. It's some other kind of God's will. And we don't clarify what we mean, and that just makes it harder. Um, James Petty presents other challenges here. He says, if guidance comes from wisdom, and wisdom is the application of values to life, uh, then our culture, despite its great technological knowledge, cannot provide real guidance. You say, what does that mean? That means when it comes to God's will, we'll never be able to say, there's an app for that. I can just download it on my phone and no matter, you know, wouldn't that be great? I put in these variables and it spits out God's will. Um, there's no amount of technological advance, no financial advisor, no uh, even counselor. I think this is where people get frustrated with counseling sometimes. Because they come to counseling and they say, just tell us what we ought to do. And they want answers more than they want guidance. And part of the frustration with that is that we can do everything that we're supposed to do and things still go badly. Let me introduce that to you this way. How do you read the book of Proverbs? You know, something like Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. Do you read that as a promise or wisdom principles? Does that mean every time I give a gentle answer that the person is going to stop yelling at me? No, because what we're being given there is wisdom, a way of life that is best and good and represents God and, and on the whole will be most beneficial to us. And so when we get this idea that we can do everything we're supposed to do and things still may go badly, I would say that has huge implications for us as couples when we face hard times. When we face hard times, is that going to be a time when we turn on one another and begin to doubt and get cynical with God? Or can we still draw together and encourage one another? I remember the early years of our marriage right after grad school. Uh, we took a ministry position. And for the first three years of that ministry, it was hard. Uh, we were put the cheese back poor. 
going through the grocery, had so much money, and if there wasn't enough to get cheese, cheese went back, and you just didn't have it on your sandwich. And yes, you took a sandwich to lunch every day. And there were other things in that setting that was hard. And I think we prayed about that decision. And as I look back on it now, I think it contributes to where we are. And I would say that was in God's will. But there was a period of time where enduring together, Sally and I, and there was a sense of, does this mean we didn't follow God's will? And we had to be able to encourage and support one another in the midst of that. But then another challenge is that sometimes good good decisions get executed poorly and they wind up looking bad. I mean, how many of us have signed up for a gym membership and thought this is a great idea to get in shape and lose weight and then we kind of forgot that going to the gym and sweating was part of that process? Uh, You know, for us... Uh, we are that family that we found an exercise bike at the end of somebody's driveway. And my wife said, we can go get that. And we did. And we gave it a, a spot in our house. And we moved it two times to different places and never used it. And then finally, we set it at the end of our driveway. And we let it go on another pilgrimage to, to experience the same fate in somebody else's house. But oftentimes, we begin to think, we tried what we should do and it didn't work. I signed up for a gym. I got an exercise bike. And we begin to think our poor execution rendered godly wisdom ineffective. But what we often fail to realize is that what works for me, sometimes, not always, is more a reflection of my immaturity than my temperament or learning style. So think of it in terms of healthy decision making. You know, we're supposed to research a decision, right? Uh, But within our personality, some of us are just really impulsive. We don't want to research it. Let's just decide. And if that doesn't work, I'll make another decision. Uh, And others of us, uh, we get paralysis through analysis, and we want to make sure that everything is just right, and you're probably married to one another. Um, But sometimes we let the extreme versions of that, which I would say is immaturity, play a more prominent role in our decision making and we just say that's what works for me or maybe you know consulting in the multitude of counselors there is wisdom right so we should talk to other people and so if we're an extrovert we think talking to people about a decision that's great I'll talk to whoever I love to talk talking's better than making a decision but to have lots of conversations about this and then the introvert says I don't really want to talk about this let's just decide I mean this is kind of awkward and again you're probably married to one another and, and it, it there's some aspect of healthy decision making but that if we let those aspects of who we are become exaggerated, that is more immaturity than the person that God made us to be. Uh, And another aspect that probably follows out of that is this whole reality that we're making today's decision while executing yesterday's decisions and preparing for tomorrow's decisions. Uh, We live in three time zones constantly when it comes to decision-making, past, present and future Um, it's not just juggling you know you see a a juggler doing three bowling pins and you think that's impressive Uh, you see a juggler doing a bowling pin a knife and a bowling ball and they're all different shapes sizes and one of them's on fire and you go that's impressive Uh, when we're executing decision making in three different time zones it just has a different feel to it Uh, and our personalities tend to prefer different time zones you know, you've got the saver 
who always is preparing for that rainy day, and whenever it comes, we're going to knock it out of the ballpark. And then you've got the spender, who's let's live right now in the present. You've got the sulker, who wants to live in the past and just kind of go over how that makes me feel. And you've got um, the forgetter, who just wants to live in the present. Um, And how we navigate these preferences is a huge part of our decision-making. And so as we talk about individual and consensus and headship and, uh, headship and submission decision-making, part of our goal is to figure out how do we live in that balance where we live in the present, we learn from the past, and we're preparing for the future. Henry Blackaby again. He says, the focus of the Bible is God. The essence of sin is a shift from God-centered to self-centered life. The essence of salvation is a denial of self. When this happens, God can accomplish through us the purposes He had before He created the world. Now, again, when we look at this, one of the first things that comes to my mind is we just need to admit uh, we often don't approach decisions by asking the best questions. I think one of the best ways to illustrate that is just when you ask a kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, well, they don't naturally ask the best set of questions. They, they either ask what makes the most money or uh, what gets the most vacation time or, uh, you know, they just know what their parents do and they assume they ought to do that. Um, you know, me going to college, uh, I majored in computer science at first because I like video games and I thought that would be fun. Uh, I went to Calculus 1 and God graciously delivered me from that. Um, but... When we look at this and we think about the role of sin, one of the things that we realize is that unbiblical approaches to decision-making often work for a while. Uh, now again, sometimes, you know, worldly decision-making, they by common grace have taken things that were biblical and they just don't use the Bible to support it. Uh, the world's a pragmatic place and they're going to take whatever works. I've heard even secular counselors say that the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, is the best book on counseling ever written. Not because they believe Jesus is the Son of God and the gospel is necessary for an enjoyable life, just because they look at it and they go, this is incredibly practical and this is what I tell people all the time. But there's also times in a broken world where people will leverage influence in a way that is wrong and it seems like they get an advantage. And we feel like as Christians we are at a competitive disadvantage. But I would say that's the plot line of almost every comic book I ever read. I mean, if you think about it, how does every comic book end? Uh, The good guy is just about to catch the bad guy. Uh, Superman is after Lex Luthor, if those two pair up. Uh, And Lex Luthor has the girl. He's standing on top of a building, and he knows he's about to get caught. So he pushes the girl off the building. So Superman has to choose, do I get the bad guy or save the girl? Superman always saves the girl. Lex Luthor gets away, so there can be another comic book. And in that moment, uh, we admire the hero and we disdain the villain. And even though that leverage was used in a way that was wrong, our overall sense is this is good. The right thing happened. Um, And as we look at the injustice of the world, I think that's something we need to to remember. Now, another challenge. Uh, My desires compete with one another not to mention my spouse. The things that I want don't get along. I want to eat whatever I want, and I want to be thin. Um, 
I want to save money and I want to have nice things. And that's true before I introduce anything that my wife wants into the conversation. Another version of this is what we think above in terms of success. Some people think success is having security. Uh, other people think success is seizing upon every opportunity. Um, that's going to make a big difference between how a couple makes decisions. But again, if I'm honest, I want security and I want success and opportunity. And again, that's without introducing my wife's desires into that. And another aspect um, is that oftentimes the spouse with the more dominant personality seems to make all the decisions. Unless we're careful, uh, how we make decisions in a family has nothing to do with intentionality. It's just whoever has the more dominant personality is the one who wears the pants. Um, and that's the kind of thing that if between the two of you, you ask, where do we want to go to eat? And one of you typically says, I don't care. Then the other one begins to feel like they don't have a voice. And so part of our goal is to go, okay, how do we do this? Because I will tell you, I'm more of the laid back guy. And so how do I serve as head of my family when I'm not the one who tends to have the more um, bold personality within our marriage? That was a real point of insecurity for me uh, for this kind of reason. Now, uh, one more quote here in the first chapter. Uh, Kevin DeYoung says, I'm convinced uh, that the previous generations did not struggle like we do to discover God's will because they didn't have as many choices. In many ways, our preoccupation with the will of God is a Western middle-class phenomena of the last 50 years. You know, basically what he's saying is that if I was born a generation or two ago, I would not be the pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. I would be the next generation of farmer on the Hambert family farm in rural western Kentucky. I would not be married to a girl from eastern Tennessee because we met at a college in western Tennessee. Those kinds of choices just weren't there. And in a day where communication and the ability to move has exploded rapidly over the last several decades, it's introduced a lot more decisions. And the more we decide, when we look at the root meaning of what it means to decide, coming from the Latin word desidere, and yes, I did just want to sound smart, it means to cut off. When I say yes to this, I am cutting off everything that's not this. And from that, we begin to realize there's probably not a less romantic word in the English vocabulary than no. When I'm in love, I want to give you the world and the moon too. But yet decision-making makes me have to say no to some things. And I think that's why it's important in a seminar like this that we acknowledge that decision-making is not all that a couple should do. Uh, otherwise, marriage begins to feel like a business venture. That, that's what creates a couple where they just become roommates. Now, I'm going to give you three things that reference a couple of parts of earlier seminars and where we're going here that I think are the preventatives from this seminar creating that kind of just roommates dynamic. One, you need to have really good day-to-day -day communication where there's just things for us to talk about and enjoying and getting to know one another that's not business meeting. And if you say, ah, that's a weakness for us, then the communication seminar in this series, chapter 3, 
is something I'd invite you to go back and review. Secondly, you need to begin to see mutual sacrifice as part of the romance and bonding nature of a marriage. And if you say, we just, that's not the way we naturally think about these things, then that's what the entire foundation seminar was about. And third, you need to have a process of decision-making that works. And that's why we're going to look at individual decision-making, consensus decision-making, and headship and submission decision-making. Because it's not just that we need a process that works. We need to be able to match the right thing up with the right decision. Because if I'm trying to do a lot of stuff through headship and submission that should be done through consensus, this is going to feel like a controlling marriage. And if we try to do everything through consensus and we lose any sense of individual decision-making, then we're going to feel paralyzed by trying to talk through everything we decide. And we're going to think, maybe we're just not cut out to be married. And so... What I want us to realize, kind of final point in this first chapter, um, is that the process of decision-making is when you learn to trust God and build unity with each other. And in decision-making, we can get so caught up on outcomes that we miss the significance of process. And it's in the process of decision-making, the discussion, the learning, the figuring things out, waiting and faith and giving each other the benefit of the doubt. That is when uh, we build trust for God and unity for one another. And as we go through each of these processes, I don't want you to lose sight of that.